Welcome to Adventist Voices. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I want to wish you a happy new year from me and all of the folks who uh, support Spectrum. We're looking forward to a new year with all of you exploring Adventism and the larger world of spirituality and social justice, peacemaking. And uh, to kick it off for this podcast, I am very honored to share my conversation with Dr. Larry Garrity. As you'll hear in this conversation, um, we explore everything from his early life to how he fell in love and won over his uh, wife, Jillian, as well as the twists and turns of his career, uh, how he ended up at Harvard, and uh, some lessons he's learned both as uh, an administrator in multiple institutions and someone who has been present at incredible moments in Adventist history, including the drafting of the fundamental beliefs at the GC session and also attending Glacier View. So I am kicking off a series that will be uh, periodically returning to this year where I have extended interviews with legends in Adventism, folks that have had incredible careers. And honestly, I just want to have a conversation with them and, and learn something about um, this uh faith and culture that we share, and also um, learn some lessons about how to um, survive and flourish in our community from them. So uh, this is going to be split into two parts because um, the conversation is so in-depth. So you'll be hearing the first half this week, and then we'll release the second half next week. And of course, as always, I want to hear your thoughts, so feel free to email me at acarpenter at puc.edu. Thank you very much for listening, and I wish you all the best in this year as we explore hope and faith together. Yes, I do, Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Well, I thought um, it would be helpful to maybe begin with um, your earliest memory of something connected to Adventism. Mm. Mm. Um, my earliest memories are from uh, the village that we lived in during World War II in central China. We were behind Japanese lines in a little village that had no uh, vehicular traffic. There were no roads to this village. The only way you could get there was on sampans on the on the river, and. Uh, uh, it was an Adventist college that my, my parents both taught at. We were the only foreigners in the village, and so all my playmates were, uh, were Chinese, so I grew up speaking Chinese quite well. And uh, so I have many memories uh, of that home and the interaction with people there. Um, uh, of course, Sabbaths were special, as in Adventist, any Adventist community with uh, with church and services and so forth. Um, the One of the earliest um, sort of connections to the outside world that I remember was uh, the death of President Roosevelt, because as I was uh, lying down uh, for my nap, my mother was crying. And I said, Mom, you know, why are you crying? And she said, I've just heard that our president has, has died. Um, but uh, missionaries would sometimes come through. We would have special visits from, um, from people. We would have 
visits from GIs who who were Adventists who were part of um, you know the the armed services. Um, so those are the kinds of memories that I had as I was growing up in that little village. Um, can you talk about when you first remember? Um, sort of having maybe a culture clash between the missionary Adventist milieu that you were a part of and what we might call kind of North American Adventism? Um, hmm. Did it flow seamlessly for you? Did you feel like you kind of went between those two worlds or was there a time when you thought, well, that's really different or, you know, that's not what I believe or, or feel that mm-hmm. it's normal. Um, one of the, one of the culture clashes that I had was coming back from the mission field to, um, to high school in the United States. I came to San Pasqual Academy as a, as a junior, uh, from, um, from having uh, spent my teenage years in Lebanon and I found academy culture um, ha- hard to to get used to. I mean, the conversations that people had were all about pop music and girls and cars and sports, uh, and those were not things that I was used to. I mean, I I missed conversations about. Uh, history and religion and politics and things like that. Um, I got a job working in the tool shed as a as a sort of tool boy, and uh, the kids loved teasing me. I mean, they would uh, come and say, "You know, I need stripe paint," and so I would try to find that on the shelf where they would want left-handed wrenches. And I thought, well, you know, what what are those and so forth. So uh, they quickly found out that. Uh, I was from an, another age and another continent, but uh, eventually I adapted and uh, it didn't take too long. But but I remember thinking, you know, this is a very alien culture that I've come to. Um, so you say that you felt like you adapted. Was there, um, was there a point uh, where you um, made a decision to kind of, I don't know what the best way to put it, perhaps um, be more immersed or a part of, um, you know, uh, American culture. Um, Was it something that just happened kind of as you were um, assimilating? Um, Was there a a part of you that always felt like an outsider? Yeah, I... You know, I tried to adapt. I thought this is this is my new uh, uh, my new culture. I've got to be a part of it. And when the guys in the uh, dorm said uh, we have a custom here called door slamming, you know, and we all do it at the same time, so I remember saying, "Okay, well, I'll be part of this group." And so, at the given signal. Uh, we all started slamming doors, you know, and I didn't know that when the dean came around the corner that you were supposed to stop. <laughs> and so I was the only one who got into trouble for slamming my door, you know, and I thought, so they sort of set me up, you know, for the, for these kinds of uh, situations. But uh, I, uh, I learned to adapt uh, and uh, uh, I, there, there were no really serious problems. <clears throat> Um, so let's talk a little bit about your parents and the influence that they were on you. Obviously, they were an influence in um, connecting you to uh, oh, oh, very many cultures, mm-hmm. and um, in, they introduced you to Adventism. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about uh, you know a strong memory from your father that you think helped um, define? your relationship with him? My father was a convert from Roman Catholicism. And uh, he, um, uh, I think, continued to have that kind of devotion to the church and to God. And he was 
a, I would say, a strict disciplinarian and believed in following the rules and did not appear to be much of a questioner of tradition and rules and what had been received from, from the church. So he transferred his allegiance from the Catholic Church to the Adventist Church and more or less accepted it. It appeared to me, hook, line, and sinker. And so I grew up in a home that was very traditional. We always had morning worships, evening worships. We read uh, from scripture uh, daily. Uh, we guarded the edges of the Sabbath, always prepared for the Sabbath. Um, Sabbath meals were special times. Um, I grew up in a home that was loving. My parents never fought. They got along well, even though they had their own opinions sometimes. But um, I, I, I felt loved and appreciated and supported uh, sometimes disciplined, but um, I s experienced my dad as a person of integrity, somebody that um, stood for what was right, and uh, somebody who was gracious and considerate. So he, he, he certainly was an influence on me. And as I never anticipated becoming an administrator, uh, such as he was, but uh, when I did, I think that subconsciously he was a role model. Mm. Um, I want to return to your mother in a, in a minute, but let's follow that um, role model of being an administrator um, because we're kind of jumping around Talk, do you mind talking about a perhaps a moment in your administrative career where you were, um, you know, faced with a, a decision between maybe the Adventism that you grew up with and the Adventism that you found true for you um, or more authentic? And how did you um, choose between? you know, and say the Adventism of the 40s and 50s and, and the Adventism that was increasingly a part of your generation's experience, at least as you were understanding it? Well, um, when I say that, that my father was very loyal to the church and followed its dictates and so on, yet he had a personal ethic that demonstrated his independence. I, I remember um, during the Mary Kay Silver uh, controversy at the Pacific Press, um, he turned up at the court hearing uh, in the Bay Area, and the his colleagues from the General Conference who were standing at the door to the court said, oh, good, Tom, we're so glad to see you here. We need all the help we can get. And he said, I'm here to support Mary Kay. Mm -hmm. And they were shocked that, you know, I mean, he was an employee of the General Conference. They expected him to toe the line. And he said, but there's a question of equity and justice that's involved, that's higher than our traditions, you know. And so there, there was that kind of um, influence in the background as well. While, while my dad was a traditionalist, um, yet there, was, there were certain ethics that trumped <laughs> tradition, if you want to put it that way. And so I think that uh, my experience as administrator has uh, perhaps been influenced by that kind of a, an example too. I mean, I, I believe in authority, and I believe in cooperation, and I believe in um, working with the system, but um, it has to be open to uh, to criticism at, at the right times. And so there have been times in my experience where I had to buck the system due to um, belief in 
in uh, justice and equity when that didn't seem to be in play. Is there a time when you felt you paid a cost for uh, choosing justice over conformity? Uh, yes, in, in the short run, uh, but I think in the long run, I have benefited hmm. from that. I, I, I um, ran into short-term problems, maybe, and developed a certain kind of reputation um, that were problematic, maybe, in certain areas. But in the long run, I think that um, I've been able to get along and serve the church and society uh, just the same. Yeah. Well, let's return to your, um, your, as, as I say, the, your parentage and uh, your mother. Um, in what way do you feel like she influenced your view of the world and, and who you are? My mother was always um, my best friend. She had, she had empathy. And I knew that she had my back. And uh, uh, entering my teenage years, when uh, a lot of kids have have problems, I I had my share, I suppose. But she had a knack for being around at the right time to have a conversation. You know, uh, maybe late at night, uh, she would start ironing in a room where I was just, just to be there, you know, and I would, I would begin to talk and she would listen and she would ask questions. And, uh, uh, she, she was definitely somebody whose uh, love I could count on and, um, and was, was a, uh, very strong influence in my life. Hmm. Um, so you've talked about arriving back in the U.S. and you've talked about um, going to San Pasquale Academy. Obviously, then you went on to Pacific Union College. Um, before the, before that, uh, from San Pasquale, I went to Cologne. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for three years, I went to Newbold College. And uh, the reason for my going to Newbold was frankly to pursue Jillian, who oh. I had grown up with uh, in Lebanon. And she was British and uh, in England. Um, and it was only after securing her commitment to marry me that uh, I ended up at, for my senior year at Pacific Union College. Good. Well, that's where I wanted to go. And you <laughs> intuited uh, that we needed those details. So thank you. Um, can you talk about... Um, as you say, uh, securing her uh, commitment to marry you. <laughs> how did that? Um, how did that happen? You know, um, my parents moved uh, from from China uh, to the Middle East at the time that um, the Chinese communists took over China, and so the church and, of course, foreigners had to leave. So the church moved my dad. To Middle East College in Beirut, Lebanon, and um, that was an institution that my future father-in-law uh, Arthur Keogh had founded back in 1939. Um, and uh, my my dad came to be the, the president of that institution, and so the Keoghs were still there in the community. And my mom became the uh, church school teacher for the missionary kids, uh, among whom were the Keogh children. And uh, Jillian, the eldest Keogh child, and I were um, were two of the older students in my mom's classroom. And that's where, where I got to know Jillian. Um, and it was interesting, my mom would use the Keogh children as an example to the rest of us. You know, they were cultured and they obeyed the rules. And if you could all be like the Keogh children, you know, <laughs> you'd have it made. <laughs> so I had that, that influence about, uh, uh, for, from, from my mom. But 
I had a good time um, with Jillian as a friend. We we developed a natural uh, relationship. We worked on MV honors together. We would go hiking. We had long conversations uh, since we were the eldest kids in our families and we were neighbors. We would help each other with our younger siblings or we would help with each other with chores at home, that sort of thing. And so when when we um, moved back to California and I went to San Pasquale, my dad was, the reason we had come back to the California was my dad wanted to finish his doctorate at USC. And so I missed Jillian and I missed that friendship and companionship. And um, while there were lots of fine uh, girls in, in academy, none quite came up to the standard that I was used to with Jillian. Keto standard. That's right. So, uh, so when, uh, when I was thinking about uh, college, I was back home in, in Beirut with my parents and was actually planning to go to Pacific Union College, but I got a letter from Jillian, who was at Newbold, and she said, "Why don't you Why don't you come to 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 Newbold uh, to college?" And uh, so I went over to her parents and I said, "What do you think of this idea?" You know, and her dad said, "Oh, you you won't like England. It rains all the time, and the food is terrible, and so on." He he had sent his daughter home to England to marry a, a Britisher. Mm. And I don't know if that was in his mind when he's said those things or not. But anyway, her mom said, no, she said, England is a beautiful place. The food is fine. And uh, I think that would be a great idea for you to go, you know. So anyway, I uh, I, I quickly uh, canceled my arrangements for PUC and uh, started uh, the arrangements for, for Newbold. And uh, I told uh, Jillian in a letter the time I would be arriving, and she said that she would meet me at uh, at the airport, and sure enough, she did with her boyfriend, and uh, so that was a surprise. Interesting. Uh, so <laughs> it took me a while to um, to uh, solidify this relationship, and she, looking back on it, she said the re she she knew that we were good friends and she felt that we were going to end up together, but mm -hmm. she felt I was too serious about it. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't ready to sort of settle down in that kind of a relationship. And so I had to wait uh, a couple of years um, until one day her parents were on furlough in England and they were at a nearby uh, town. They often invited me home for, for, for lunch on Sabbath. And uh, Jillian and I were washing dishes after Sabbath lunch. And uh, uh, she said something about, oh, I asked her, uh, you know, why, why she wasn't willing to, uh, to spend more time with me. And she said, well, she says, I don't really know you that well. I said, well, whose fault is that? Mm. <laughs> She said, well, if you get permission from Newbold to date me, I'll give it a try. And at Newbold during that time, if you were going to date somebody, you had to have faculty permission. That seems quaint, doesn't it? But they had three, three um, categories, A, B, and C. And if you were category C, you could date in groups. And if you had category B, you had to have a chaperone. And if you're in category A, you could date on your own. Um, and so she said, if you get a category A, I'll, I'll go out with you. So I, I applied for a category A relationship to date. And they said, the faculty person that I talked to said, but she's already dating another guy. And I said, I know, but she said that if I get category A, she will date me. Okay, they said, we'll take it to the faculty. So the word came back from Robert Olson, who was at that time the president of Newbold. And he said, the faculty has granted you 
a category A. Jillian Keogh is a fine, fine person. Um, you'll probably have to learn to break her will, though, he said. <laughs> and so I've often said that I've tried for, you know, uh, many years to do that, but it's never worked. <laughs> anyway, I, I, she was at a teacher training college nearby working on her, her British uh, teaching degree. And so when she came Sabbath morning to church at Newbold, I had in hand the Category A permission letter, and I showed it to her, and she started to cry. And she said to me later, I knew that was it. Mm. We were going to be together for life. <laughs> and, 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 ever, and it worked well. And <laughs> ever, since, ever since, we've had, had a great relationship. <laughs> well, if you can't beat the Kios, join them. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, dear. That's really a fascinating um, history. And it's a great glimpse into kind of that, that era of Adventism as well and, and how they ran institutions. That's true. <laughs> um, so when you first got married, where did you and Jillian live? We got married in 1962, uh, the Sunday after the general conference session ended in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. Her parents were delegates to the general conference that year. And of course, they had to come from Lebanon. So that was a long way. So we took advantage of that to, to make that the time. And I had just graduated that spring from Pacific Union College and was headed to uh, the seminary at Andrews. Um, so uh, we were married in the um, in the Deer Park Church, the Sanitarium Church, yeah. uh, where Jillian's uncle was a member and was the head elder. And so um, uh, from, uh, I was employed by the Central California Conference to um, be a call porter leader for student call porters that summer. And uh, so we got married in, in August, and I finished up my work uh, as a call porter and then headed for, for the seminary. Hmm. And do you mind just describing a little bit about the kind of early days of making, you know, starting a career? Uh, mm -hmm. Call porter work, as I can attest, is, is difficult. Um, right. And um, you're starting a new family mm -hmm. um, and thinking about, you know, what you want to do. I think, you know, you have a whole life that you have led afterward. What were, what were some of the experiences there as sort of a, a new husband, a new father, a new Adventist employee uh, that you think uh, shaped you as you were in those early days? Well, Jillian and I were, you know, both, one of the advantages of that relationship was that we, you know, for 70 years now, we've had the same friends, the same experience and so on. And so we've, we, uh, for, from very close to the beginning of our lives, we've, we've known each other and have a common background from the mission field and parents who have committed to the church and so forth. So, um, we have not had, uh, struggles that maybe some couples may, may have had. And uh, she, my last year at PUC, uh, she taught at Napa Junior Academy. Um, and then we, we got married and she knew that she was marrying uh, a minister and that our lives would be committed to denominational service. We hoped to the mission field. We, hmm. so we both had grown up there. We offered our ourselves to the Middle East division uh, as uh, potential missionaries, but the, the division president wasn't interested in us. So um, the, but the far Eastern division was, so they um, gave us a call to teach at Hong Kong Adventist college to be a pastor and to be a teacher. And we accepted that, but we asked them for, for a year's, um, experience in the United States before going over. I felt like I didn't want to 
to arrive just completely fresh and new, you know, without having had a little experience. And so the Southeastern California Conference agreed to, um, when I finished seminary, to give me a, a experience at Santa Ana Church, mm. Broadway Church. So that's where I got got started. And so Jillian, um, while we were at Andrews, finished up her American bachelor's degree in education. And she started uh, the kindergarten program for the elementary school there uh, while, while I did my work. So we were both in school and working. And summers, I canvassed, call Porter, uh, for, uh, to, to help with our expenses. In fact, I, I call Porter seven summers, both for academy, for college, and for graduate school. Uh, during seven summers, I, I worked to, to get tuition money and so forth. So Julian and I uh, both felt committed to the church and to mission service. But it was during that, that year of service in Santa Ana that the General Conference approached and said, said um, you know, Siegfried Horn at Andrews University wants you to um, come and teach in the seminary, Hebrew Bible, archaeology, and so on. And eventually succeed him. Hmm. And I said, well, that would be a, a wonderful opportunity, but I've already accepted a commitment in Hong Kong and they've been waiting for us this year. So I turned down that call. And the General Conference came back to me and said, he's determined that you're the one he wants and it would be easier to find a replacement for you in Hong Kong than to satisfy Horn. So we really wished you would do that, you know. So I talked to Horn and I said, if I were to do this, it would obviously mean going back to school, getting a doctorate before I would come and teach. And he said, yes. And uh, I said, where would you recommend? He said, well, the best place right now is Harvard. Well, there were a couple of professors there. Frank Moore Cross and Jernist Wright, who are well known in the field. He said, they're the ones that I wish you could study with. So Joey and I prayed about it and we sort of gave a Gideon's test and we prayed that if I applied only to Harvard and I thought, you know, not everybody gets in to Harvard, so it'd be very easy to have that turned down. So I prayed that if I got an acceptance, that would be the sign that I would do that, go to Andrews eventually, rather than, than to Hong Kong. And that was a very sin sincere prayer, not knowing what would happen. So when I was accepted, that that's what set me on that course. And that's how I ended up... Uh, teaching at Andrews. Hmm, that's fascinating. Um, can you talk about your relationship with Siegfried Horn, um, mm -hmm. both as a student and then as a colleague and, and as someone who um, influenced you? Yeah. Uh, the first time I met him was when <laughs> I was a seven-year-old and we were on furlough mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. My dad uh, did a couple of quarters at the seminary on furlough. And in the stairwell where we lived, there were several apartments for seminary students. And in came Siegfried Horn and his wife. They had just come from Walla Walla, where he had spent a year finishing up his American bachelor's, having been a missionary in the Dutch East Indies, where he was incarcerated by the Dutch during World War II. When, when the Dutch, when the Germans overran Holland in a lightning <laughs> a strike, the Dutch in the Dutch East Indies were so incensed at the Germans that they immediately imprisoned all the Germans who were living in, you know, what became Indonesia. So Horn got caught up in that since he was German. And that's a long and fascinating story, how he was transferred from Indonesia to India uh, to the British when the Japanese came down into, into Indonesia. And in that transfer, he was put on 
the, um, the, the wrong ship. In other words, there were four ships taking all these prisoners, and there happened to be two men with a surname Horn, and they got onto the wrong ships, according to the, to the manifests, and the one that he was supposed to have been on was torpedoed with loss of all life at sea, and so his wife back home in Jakarta uh, was notified that she, she, he was drowned. And for the rest of the war, uh, he ended up in, in India in a prison camp in the Himalayas. So he kept writing to her, but none of his letters ever got through. And she thought he was dead. And uh, at the end of the war, she ended up in Washington, D.C. as a nurse, met another guy, and they were about to be married when Siegfried Horn turns up. Incredible. And so, I mean, it was a shock you know, to the both of them what had happened. Anyway, here, here, here the Horns moved in 1947 into this apartment building where, where we were, and I was a kid, you know, and all my memories are of him being very Germanic and very intent on what he was doing and not very friendly. And, you know, we just pass each other in the halls and so on. But I, I learned a little bit about his story and how he was interested in archaeology and he was, uh, you know, going to go work on a doctorate and so forth. Well, my folks and, and we, of course, went back to, to the Middle East. But Horn turns up on a visit to Middle East College on his first visit to, to the Holy Land. And he's, he's wanting to visit all these things that he has known about, studied about, and so on. And this, he, he lectured at the college. I attended his lectures as a teenager, found them fascinating. He talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls having just been discovered and so forth. And a couple of years later, he came back on a tour. He was taking ministers on a tour. And I said to him, uh, any chance I could join your tour? And he very kindly let me as a teenager join his, his tour. We visited Jerusalem and Egypt and so on. And so I developed an interest in archaeology, ha having grown up as a teenager there in the Middle East. And I traveled with my parents, went to you know, Iran and Iraq and Jerusalem and Turkey and Egypt and so forth. And so watched archaeologists at work, got acquainted with Horn. Um, and I thought that would be an interesting career. But when I was at the seminary, uh, I thought, you know, how, how would I be employed by, as an archaeologist? There didn't seem to me much. So I, I ended up thinking I'll go in, into the ministry. But I took all of the courses that Horn offered. Um, and did well in them. Uh, I didn't know he had any interest in me, particularly. I mean, when I'd go into his office uh, to talk to him, I always got the feeling that the sooner you ask your question and get the answer, the better, because I'm busy, you know? I mean, I always had that feeling. So it wasn't as though we, he, he particularly showed an interest in me that I knew of. But I guess because I had, we had this long, kind not I wasn't I wouldn't call it a relationship, but we we knew each other, and I had done well in his classes, and I guess that's what led to his uh, wanting me to come. So I certainly have him to thank for the way my career has developed. Um, as you were um, headed off to Harvard instead of Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, were you, what, what were your thoughts as, as you were moving from really being um, ensconced in Adventist education and Adventist missionary culture mm -hmm. to being in Cambridge, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sitting at the feet of folks who maybe shared your interests in archaeology, but maybe not your faith. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's, that certainly was a formative period. Um, it was the 60s, and the, the, the American society was in turmoil because of the Vietnam War and so on. And uh, that was uh, 
constantly on everybody's mind, you know, in the community and at the university. I remember how differently my two major professors reacted to what was going on. I remember Frank Cross saying to me one day, I can't believe Harvard is supposed to be the cream of the crop of American young people, and they're out demonstrating, and they're not coming to classes. And he said, you know, they're not taking seriously their vocation. Whereas Jernist Wright, he got a crate and brought it out in front of the, the uh, classroom and uh, put it on the street corner. And he stood up and he said, you know, if, if this was Amos here, this is what he would say about the issues that you're dealing with, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had these two demonstrations uh, of uh, a way to handle uh, the issues that were going on. Um, Jernist Wright was a, a uh, Presbyterian minister, uh, and uh, he he knew, of course, that I was uh, headed eventually to Andrews when I got through. He knew Horn. Uh, he assigned me a topic in my first year to present a paper uh, in this seminar. The custom was graduate students would be, they would decide on an overall topic. This, this year happened to be the 13th century BC. And so your paper had to somehow be related to that, that century uh, in time. And he asked me to, um, to do a, a, a paper on the background of the conquest in the 13th century BC. Well, I already knew that I would run into problems because having come from the seminary and for Siegfried Horn, uh, the dating of the Exodus be around 1400 and uh, then the, uh, the conquest would be the, you know, the uh, 14th century. So there was gonna be a problem, but I, my professor had written books on the subject and I knew this, the secondary literature um, and a more, more um, a critical approach to chronology and to the interpretation of the evidence and so on. I don't know whether he specifically assigned that to me, knowing that this would be a problem uh, or not, but it was my first test. Mm. So I, I, I worked very hard on this paper. And I couldn't find evidence for, for an Israelite destruction of cities during the 13th century the way my professor had written it up. Um, so in a long footnote, I gave an alternative position <laughs> that it was essentially Horn's position, you know. Uh -huh. And the custom was your paper was had to be done two weeks ahead of time. And it was passed around to all the professors and students who had a chance to read it. And then when you came to the seminar, you were assigned a faculty and a student critic. And then there was a discussion of your paper. Well, as soon as this paper was passed out, my, my, uh, fellow students came to me and said, Garrity, your goose, goose is cooked. I mean, you're, you, you're differing with our professor. He's, he's on record. <laughs> you know what you have to say, you know? And I said, yeah, but I mean, I've done my work and I stand by what I've, what I've said, you know? Uh, so they brought, Coffee and donuts to seminar that day, which not didn't usually happen. They wanted to enliven the atmosphere, make it more congenial, because they thought this was going to be the end of my my time there. And it turned out that um, that Ernest Wright himself was my faculty critic, another fellow student uh, also, and he 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 never dealt with my archaeological evidence hmm. and. He treated the, the 
scriptural passages from a what we would call a higher critical point of view and made room for his theory that way, but not with the archaeology, which was the main point. Well, and he wouldn't look at me, I didn't feel. And I so I felt like I'm in I'm really in trouble, you know. So I had a hard time sleeping that night. I said to Jillian, you know, <laughs> this is I'm sure this is a problem. So the next morning I went in to his office, made an appointment to talk to him. And I said, I, I knew that I, I know that you're not happy with, with me. Um, I've done my best. And you know, he said, look, he says, I know you're Horn's student. And I know your background. And he said, let me tell you this, that I see myself as a conservative. When he said, I was working on my doctrine, nobody believed in the Bible. Hmm. And he said, to make room for an exodus was a very um, avant-garde thing to do. Because most people at the, t- at the time I went to school didn't even believe an exodus occurred and so forth. You know, So he says, I see myself as arguing to support biblical history. And he said, uh, I don't want to change your points of view, but he said, this is what's important to me, that you know the evidence and that you're fair to it. Hmm. And if you do that, that's, that's what an education here is supposed to you know, do. And he said, to tell you the truth, I'll never be able to as confidently talk about my views as I have to heretofore. So he says, your, your paper was a solid piece of work. He said, he said, by the way, I'm looking for a teaching assistant next year. Would you be willing to do, to be my, you know, I, I was blown away. Incredible. I, I, I went home to Jillian and I said, I have a truly great professor, mm. you know. And so you can see that that experience was extremely influential in my outlook, my overall view, the way to treat people, the way to handle students, evidence, so forth, you know. So um, you survived. I survived. And flourished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. While we're there um, in, at your, in your time at Harvard, can you talk about the, uh, your interaction with other Adventist graduate students and, and how the Adventist Forum began to form? Yes. Um, Roy Branson just preceded me. He was not in residence during the time I was there, though he would come back, um, you know, to do some of his work and to do, defend his, his thesis and so forth. But we were friends. Um, there were other Adventist graduate students in the Boston area, of course. And um, Alvin Quirum was a young uh, professor at Harvard in the chemistry department. And he and Verla... Um, became the um, the the godfather godmother to the group of uh, of uh, graduate students you know in the area and um, we would have regular meetings on campus uh, where we would invite um, professors that we knew to address issues that were of interest to us or denominational officials or area pastors, you know, assign them a topic and have them come. And so we would have Sabbath afternoon sessions that in what we call the New England Adventist Forum. How many people were roughly a part of it at that time? Oh, I would say that at those meetings, there would be 30, 40 people, something like that. Um, I remember having some of the uh, a couple of times when we had noted evolutionists, you know, who were teaching in biology and so on, come talk to us about some of the issues that we were interested in. So the, the topics were varied a great deal from 
things that would be of interest to specific graduate students. And uh, we were all learning the critical skills that are necessary in research and in our various disciplines. What we had in common was not our discipline, but our church. And so it was natural to turn these newly honed critical skills that were important for our disciplines on the church and on our faith, the thing that we had in common. And it was out of that uh, yeasty time that um, we had a retreat with other graduate students from New York uh, at Camp Berkshire. And we talked about a wider organization and some of us new graduate students in Chicago and Seattle and Berkeley and so forth. And there began a discussion about why not get our various groups together and start an, an organization that would facilitate graduate students' relationship to the church. And from the standpoint of helping to keep these people in the church and active with the church, you know. And so that's, that's how the Adventist Forum started. And uh, people like Roy Branson and Alvin Quirin were very, very important to its development and to the starting of Spectrum because we felt we needed a journal where some of these uh, uh, studies could be published and so forth. Um, I've got one more question on that early period, and that is, um, you talked about the, the application of the, the, um, the sort of critical academic scholarly approaches that you were using, um, and turning that onto the church, uh, and, and, and thinking about your faith. Can you describe a little bit of the, the tensions that existed for you personally, was there, you've talked about chronology. I know <laughs> at the Andrew Seminary, chronology was very important, um, you know, right. deep into um, King <laughs> lineages and making sure the Bible was uh, accurate. Um, obviously, the Adventist Church cares about um, chronology when they're talking about the prophecies or the creation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just one area. What I'm curious about is, is there, was there something that you, that was really, a, you know, was there one, a doctrine or uh, an ethic that, um, that was, that you remember being uh, uh, central to your own experience that you sort of struggled through? Um, that you felt like, wow, this is, you know, the way that the evidence looks to me now is absolutely different than what all these church leaders believe. And, you know, I've got to figure out how I can remain an Adventist and be true to my, my intellectual um, uh, connection to reality. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I found my studies, my academic and research studies in my department, actually strengthened my faith um, in the importance of, of Scripture. I mean, there definitely, I could see that there, there's historical background that um, verifies the biblical history in general, you know, and archaeology is very useful in in throwing light and elucidating that background. And around the edges, there's certainly changes that needed to be made or new light that we had and so on. But basically, the Bible is an accurate account of the, of the human past. But um, the problem, of course, is with the first few chapters of Genesis, which, um, do, which really cannot be history their theology. Sure. Um, and that is something that the church still doesn't see clearly, in my view. Um, but if it's going to 
move into the future with success and retain its thinking people, it's got to make some, some, it has to grow in that area. But that's, you know, it's, it's the first, uh, 11 chapters of Genesis that where the biggest problems are. Um, I, I, I think that, um, that most other areas of doctrine uh, are compatible, you know, we can get along with. Mm -hmm. Was there a point, was that something that you understood, or was understanding that something that happened uh, gradually? Was it an aha moment in, the, in grad school? Was it something that you felt you had to be honest about as a, a, you know, a new professor at the seminary? Uh, was it something that came later? I'm curious about yeah. especially that understanding of the first 11 chapters. I think, I think that it was gradual. Uh, I, um, I was asked by the forum to give a talk on the Genesis genealogies as an index of time. Um, and uh, Malaris Caparis, the first editor of Spectrum, uh, heard that talk and asked me for for Spectrum. And I said, I, I didn't prepare this for, for publication. I said, this is an oral thing. You know, he said, yeah, but you showed a lot of charts and you had illustrated and so on. And that we really need that. He, he was interested in that topic himself, you know, mm -hmm. so he felt this would be helpful. So uh, I reluctantly uh, worked it over and, and gave it to him for publication. And that has, in a way, typed me for my whole denominational career, that publication, because um, uh, it caused a stir. People at Geoscience, people in the General Conference, and there was correspondence about it among the various denominational officials and the people at the seminary and so on. But, uh, but I survived it. And Siegfried Horn told me, he said, I was surprised to see you publish that. He says, I believe everything you said, but I wouldn't have said it, you know? So he was, he was a lot more cautious, um, but he supported me and keep, keep people did. And, um, Somehow I, uh, I survived that, but uh, it continued to, in a way, that reputation, neg negative reputation in the church, haunt me. Uh, because many years later, when I was the archaeology editor for Ministry Magazine and, and Spangler was the editor, I would ev every month have a different article uh, uh, that would be helpful to, to ministers uh, some of them I wrote, some of them I invited from, from other people. And one day Spangler called me into his office and he said, Larry, he said, I hate to tell you this, but he said, um, you know, your name on our masthead is sort of an embarrassment. And I said, why is that? Well, he said, the article you wrote for Spectrum, you know, on the Genesis genealogies, I said, have you read it? He said, no. I said, well, then what's, how, what do you know about it? Well, he says, people are talking about it. I said, that, that was 10, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Is it, is, and it's now becoming a problem? And he said, well, you know, apparently. Um, I said, well, what about the articles that I've been supplying you month after month? Have those been helpful or are those pro problematic? And he turned red and he said, you know, I haven't read any of them. And he was the editor you know, of Ministry Magazine. I said, well, I've got plenty of other things to do. I don't, I don't need to do this. I certainly don't want to be embarrassment. And so I, I resigned my responsibility there. And since then, they've had very few articles on archaeology, you know, in Ministry Magazine. But it just illustrates that these things pop up from time to time. People type you in a certain way. 
but um, um, I don't know if that that's really to the issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's so much how the unfortunately a lot of folks experience the church is that if you you know work through if you're intellectually honest um you, that can be used against you right right church well i hate to cut in here but this is a two-part episode and so please tune in next week as we explore more about the founding of the Adventist Forum and Spectrum, as well as listen to some incredible anecdotes from Adventist history lived by Dr. Garrity. He'll also be sharing some lessons he learned as an institutional leader for several decades. Thank you so much for listening. And I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Bye-bye. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The king.